Hey everyone, there is a lot going on right now as you all know, so we're going to drop the show a couple days early to get this information out there as soon as we possibly can. We know the news is saturated, so we're going to go beyond just the facts and have a lively roundtable, and we're actually really lucky to have a guest this week. She's an expert in the public health field, and it's an informative conversation that we have about the crisis we're in, the importance of self-quarantine, the potential trajectory that we're currently on, uh, and even a behind-the-scenes look from the doc about what's happening at our local hospitals. We hope you benefit from this show and you enjoy it. If you think others might, please share it with your friends. You can do that right from your podcast app. All right. Thanks for listening. Here's the show. It's time to go beyond the locker room talk and listen in with me, GB, producer Jay, former patients and current friends of our own Cornell-trained, world-renowned urologist and surgeon, Dr. Michael Hyman. Let's talk about the issues on men's minds where no topic's out of bounds on another sit-down with two men and a doc. Welcome to the show, JT. How are you, GB? Excellent. Doc? I am feeling quite well today. Thank you. We have a very, very special guest today. We have somebody with a Master's of Public Health from Columbia University who's an expert in infectious diseases and who worked in the Department of Health in New York City uh, focusing on tuberculosis. Lucky to have her. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, she was colleagues with the former head of the CDC, Tom Frieden. And it's it's the one and only, the wife of the world-renowned doc, <laughs> Robin Finn. Welcome to the show, Robin. Thank you so much. Welcome, Robin. Thank My you. I, I would not say I'm an expert on infectious disease, but I do have a background in public health. Well, you've, well you've helped me with my rash in the past on my arm. I did. <laughs> <laughs> Who, knew? Who knew? GB, let's talk about that later. Okay. Yeah, and best practices, we are all social distanced, at least six feet away from each other, although Robin and I may be four feet away from each other. Okay. I'll move back. <laughs> so we thought it would be a good idea, actually, to get together, um, make sure we put a show out th- this, uh, this week, because there's so much to talk about, and Robin is well qualified to discuss. So let's, you know, let's get right into it. Social distancing is sort of the topic of the day. Um, I believe maybe there should be social media distancing going on because <laughs> there's so much talk about so many things. But Robin, why don't you just, you know, tell us, you've been pretty vocal about this and I think it's been interesting. You've sort of been ahead of the proverbial curve and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, first of all, thank you so much. It's really exciting to be on Two Men in a Dock with you lovely men. So thank you so much for having me. Um, social distancing, you know, one of the things I really noticed on Facebook was there seemed to be a lot of confusion about what is, what is the purpose of social distancing? So, um, one of the things I really wanted to say is this idea of remaining six feet or more away from people, the canceling of schools and public events, um, the reason why we're doing that is not because everyone's going to die of coronavirus. I've noticed a lot on Facebook, people are saying, well, so many people are, are really not getting that sick, and I don't see why I can't go to work or get on an airplane. So I just wanted to talk about the fact that the purpose of social distancing is to keep people from getting ill, particularly at the same time, so that we don't overwhelm our healthcare system. So if you think about it, and you know, if you were in a family of eight people and everybody got sick at the same time, that would be much more disruptive and difficult than if people got sick over a period of time. So I I think that this idea that social distancing has to do with um, 
how bad is the coronavirus, what it really has to do with how we as a society, as a group of people, can keep the disease, the virus, um, from really overwhelming the hospitals so that everyone doesn't get sick and require care at the same time. And I forget if it was a text from Michael or something I read, um, it might have been something I read, where hospitals are generally at about 90% capacity in general. Is that, that, was that, that was the doc's email. I sent, you an, doc. I sent you an email. And, and yeah. he was talking about, when we talk about overwhelming the health system, he was giving a hypothetical example, which is, I think, a really right. good example I, I thought it was to, you. To, to share now. So the example that I sent out to various people about this that was all based on what Robin had taught me from the standpoint of what she's saying right now, which is that um, it's not so much that people who are social distancing are at such high risk as individuals for getting coronavirus. We, we are all as individuals at exceedingly low risk right now. I mean, even if there was a million people at this moment in the United States who had the diagnosis, which I hardly think is likely at this very moment, it would still be a 0.3% risk of having it. Uh, that, that would be the incidence of, point, or prevalence actually is the right word, would be 0.3%. So I don't, I don't think that's likely right now. I don't even think we're at 0.3%. We're at like 0.0001%. So the real issue is what Robin is saying. It's about the healthcare system. So imagine if you will, let's say, my, my community hospital, Providence St. Joseph Medical Center, um, which services, you know, North Hollywood, Glendale, Burbank, maybe some of the other outlier areas. Um, and from a population standpoint. Hundreds of thousands of people. Exactly. It's hundreds of thousands it's, of people. This is not a small. Okay. Hundreds of thousands of people. Let's say, and this I think is realistic. Let's say that they see 300 more patients than usual because of the symptoms of the virus in say either in a day or in a week, they're getting 300 more people coming in because they have symptoms out of that. So they get all screened out of that. Let's say 50 of them get the diagnosis. Okay. And out of the 50, let's say 10 of them are really sick because that's about what you're looking at statistically about 20% of people, 10 out of 50 are really seriously sick with this. So let's say all 10 of them are so sick, they need a ventilator. So out of them, and, and out of them, maybe you got, you know, three people out of them may, may not make it. So you got 50 diagnoses in this region, right? But the need for a sudden need for 10 ventilators at St. Joe's all at once is huge. There's just no other situation like that because St. Joe's, like all hospitals in the United States, operate at basically 90 to 95% capacity at any given time. So for them to suddenly need to have 10 ventilators available is a real problem. And the issue there is, let's say now you who are listening to this podcast start feeling palpitations in your chest. You, it has nothing to do with coronavirus. Right. You just have these weird palpitations and chest pain, completely separate. You go to the ER and you're like, I've got palpitations and chest pain. And they're going to say, hey, get in line because we're, we're inundated right now evaluating those 300 people for coronavirus. Um, and if you are really in need of something serious like an ICU, get in line because we don't have an ICU bed for you. And I think what, what so the doc all those is really... People, it's all those people who don't have coronavirus and need an ER are the ones. And that's gonna that's way more than the 300 people I just talked about. Way more than the 300. It's all the thousands of people who need emergency room services that can't get them because of those 300 people that are getting evaluated for coronavirus. And I think what the doc is really talking about is this idea of flattening the curve, which means spreading out 
the peak of the virus where everyone is going to get sick at the same time. So to flatten the curve, we're taking that peak and pushing it down so it stretches over a longer period of time to avoid what the doc is talking about right now. You know, the, so, so that's the concept of the clustering, right? So where they have big clusters. We don't want, right, that's what's going on in Italy where you have so many people who are sick at the same time that the hospitals are overwhelmed. They have to triage people. So right. we so, have the opportunity right now through these social distancing practices and by seeing cancellations of schools and events to okay. not have that happen. And I really want to underscore that because I am also the mom of three teenagers. And as a mom, I, I, I think that these are really important messages for us to share with our kids and our neighbors that we are not powerless, that our individual behavior really does affect, uh, affect our community, that by this idea of social distancing, staying home, avoiding places where there are other people, you know, being of, of good cheer when we have to get on our online school and and being patient so that we can all take care of each other. And I think what's happening is people um, are getting into like, oh, things are being canceled. I should panic. And I really want to say, no, things are getting canceled. And that's a good thing because that means we're really paying attention to public health measures and that we, each person and our kids and our family have the opportunity to really play a very important role in keeping our our whole neighborhood, our community safe. And that's, you know, so let's get into that for a moment because there is a temptation to hunker down, but hunker down in a way that is similar to, as someone wrote in an article, like a snow day. And that's not what you're supposed to be doing, right? It's not about having, you know, a couple families over and having a, a game night. Yeah, so I've been corresponding with my physician on this and she's indicating that she her husband and her boys completely hunkered down do not go out to dinner are not inviting anybody over whether it's their the, the boys friends or any, anybody else and they are in isolation obviously except probably to go and get food and well that probably is the smartest thing to do to be honest but i think right now we're following the cues of our of our local and national government and here in los angeles we haven't been told that yet we haven't been told uh, don't leave your house that's not where we are but i think that is in, in actuality the safest thing is to stay home with only your family and to not have you know, close contact with other people. But at this point right now in Los Angeles, there are still lots of things open, but schools have been closed and all major sporting events have been canceled. But yes, I, I like that idea about like, yeah, no, it's not a snow day. We're not supposed to have parties and all hang out together but, because but then it, we're can transmit the virus to each other. How is the progression is the question, right? So Italy had a similar progression and now you need, I've heard you need like paperwork that says I am only one person is allowed out of the house. They can yes. go to a grocery store and come back and that's yes. it. You know, oh, so wow. I, did, I didn't, I didn't I, read I heard that. that. Wow. Honestly, Jay, if, uh, T, <laughs> honestly, if we did that now in LA, it would actually be a really good thing. I mean, if we really did get the message right now for people to hunker down in their homes, not go out at all, our chances of flattening the curve would be much greater. Because even though we aren't congregating in large groups, we are still congregating. And as long as we're congregating, there is the potential for transmission of virus. So in reality, the stricter we can be with our right. um, 
you know, with our quarantining of ourselves and our family, the better we all are. So I, I don't think there's a lot of great leadership on this personally. It's hard to disagree with the extreme because the extreme is going to be the safest. So the, the real, the reality is, is how much can we, uh, can we abide by that and for how long? And that that's brings- the thing is that the question is, I'm not sure I totally agree with that extremism. I don't know how sustainable that is. I also think you have to at least, um, enter into the calculus, you know, the impact on, on the economy, because again, as I said in an earlier episode, the panic and the, and the fear can sometimes outweigh the risk such that if you remember that there are a lot of people in this country who are living not just week to week, but like day to day to put dinner on their table. And so if you take such an extreme approach, there are, there are going to be a lot of people who are going to, it's like literally there's going to be a mortality rate from the draconian measures that one can take uh, to prevent this from spreading. So there is a balance, I, right? There's I, a balance. There's a point where you can actually, I think personally, you can go too far and you're actually having a negative effect on things like morbidity and mortality, people getting sick and all kinds of problems. I, I completely agree, but you know, I'm not, the pendulum is shifting for me where as much as I really truly believe what you're saying and I want to go out and support our local businesses, I canceled our plans to go out tonight for dinner with just one other couple. We were going to pick a place that was not, not too close together and sit in a booth and whatever we could do, but it's still a menu that's traveling all over the place that night and a a waitress who's encountering or a waiter, you know, maybe a hundred other people. So it felt like an irresponsible thing to do. So, you know, at what point does... I, I do think the scale will tip back to what you're saying. It will be encouraged to go out. I've been saying that, but I don't know that that's now. Now is not the time. Now, so, now it's not so, the so, so, Robin, would it have been okay for JT and his wife to change their plans with their friends by ordering take-in and then having dinner with the friends in the house? We talked about doing that and decided not to, FYI. I mean, I, the, 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 the less amount of people you're with, the better. better so right. right now, you know, people are not going to large events, but they are still getting together with individuals using safety measures, washing their hands, um, that kind of thing. So the, certainly the less people you're exposed to, the better. Um, would they have been safer ordering taken and staying home as opposed to the four of them going out? I mean, I think JT's making a good point. I mean, there's less touching of things that other people have touched. So I, I think that could be mitigating to stay home with even with the other couple. I think that would probably be a safer decision than going out to a restaurant. But to be really safe, you would just stay home alone <laughs> with your spouse. My, my response is, and, and, and look, every there, there's... You're right. The, the most correct answer is to take the most extreme point of view. My, my feeling is, that being said, is that just the measures we are already taking in this country, which is pretty unprecedented and profound and amazing, if you ask me, and way, by the way, by the way, way ahead of the, of the curve from the standpoint of countries like Italy and Europe, other countries like Spain, where it already got a real foothold in terms of the number of people exposed and diagnoses. We're definitely a full step behind them, um, given our distance as a country and what have you. But that, mm. that those countries were not outlying all of these gatherings and events. You know, we've closed all of our sports events and concert events and these huge gatherings and, and, um, and, uh, uh, 
traveling to an extent with the, with the bands on the Europe people coming in and all these things is so unprecedented that's going to reduce exposures by like 95% comparatively where we were 2 weeks ago so this extremism of like self quarantine we're basically saying we should just all be quarantined as a society right now we should all be 100% quarantined as if we were all exposed that yeah that will take us to like the 95 to maybe the 99% i don't know if we have to go that far at this moment i actually think this is where it gets down to i don't really feel just as a person living in LA I don't feel like there's really been great leadership around this but I actually think if we had like a stay home challenge for two weeks and we had a finite amount of time that we were going to really self-quarantine like what you're talking about don't go out for two weeks I think that it could have really positive uh benefits it will if we even and especially if we had a limited time period where people weren't like uncertain to your yeah. point, but we don't have any leadership around that. Right. I think if we had a stay at home challenge for two weeks, I, that would be I, really I, helpful. I, I, I really dis- do. I disagree. I think that there is leadership in the state of California with Gavin Newsom, who came, who came out on Thursday and was recommending against large gatherings and the business community has stepped up. My company in particular, I which agree. shall go unnamed, um, <laughs> which shall go unnamed. Hooters. Is, <laughs> you had to say it. You had to say oh, it. Sorry, GB. Hooters. I to say you exposed well, GB. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Yeah. Um, is implementing and strong is implementing a policy highly encouraging the entire workforce to work from home because the, they recognize the impact, the social and economic impact that this that this has. And so I think it's business leaders that are now stepping up, recognizing exactly what you're I saying, agree. Doc. And I they're agree. saying, long term, we, we've, we've got to do something here. And that is where a lot of the leadership is being so, shown. Well, that's commendable for sure. But I'm on Facebook and there's lots of other moms with lots of kids and other parents on Facebook and they don't know what to do. So there may, I'm not saying we have no leadership, but somehow some basic messages about why we're staying home and what to do are not getting through to a lot of people. I think there's definitely confusion as, as we've been talking about how, to what degree is it? Is two people okay? Is one kid on a sleepover okay? So there's a lot of that, but let's, let's look forward one week from now or two weeks from now, as much as we, as much as we can from, you know, uh, from our own expertise, um, especially Rob and what you're really getting to is information and knowledge. Well, there's a couple of things, right? It is that we don't have it's, so what I, what worries me a little bit is when we do start getting, quote, facts. And what that's going to mean, what I mean by that is there's more testing that's going to start happening. So the numbers are going to spike, not True. because yes. there's been more people, but right. because we know about more people. Right. Yes. So as far as an end game goes, or at least a next step, I, I don't think there's any light at the end of the horizon on this thing as far as loosening these reins that you're talking about, GB, because the numbers are going to show... The curve going, it's a hockey stick. It's going gonna, it's gonna to go straight up before it starts going down. So yes, what, right. what do you see as a, what will the sign be that says, okay, maybe it's okay to tell the kids they can come back to school in seven days, or maybe it's okay to, to gather with small you know, groups? 
Well, I think that's going to be quite a while before we're ready to do that because, like you said, we're really going to have to, and maybe the doc should speak to this, but we're really going to have to get a better better handle on the number of cases, the transmission, how the hospitals are doing. The data. Yeah, the data. So I don't think we can even look toward when can we all come out again. I think right now the most important message is not to panic. Everybody's in this together. We don't, we want to, as a community, support our public health measures and each other so that we can all maintain calm through this unprecedented and very scary and and, and almost, you know, if you feel like surreal time. So, Robin, let me ask you a question. From you, In your personal opinion, how has the United States leadership been, been on this? Uh, public health crisis. Well, that's, a, that's well. I just want to do a, sh- a shout out to my <laughs> former boss, Tom Frieden, the former head of the CDC, um, and I've been following him on Twitter. And you know, I think he has given out so much really important information on this topic. And I encourage people to follow Tom Frieden because I think um, he's really been posting the data and all kinds of information. But our current government, I would give them personally an F minus. I, I, that's what I would give. I give them an F minus. And that's federal level and state level? I, I can't speak to the state level. Only federal. Only federal. Yeah. On federal. I don't, I really don't understand why we've lost weeks in getting, in preparing. I don't understand why we don't have test kits. Yeah. I don't understand why the messages were so garbled. So, I listened to our president sort of almost calling this virus a foreign virus, which was very odd to me. We, I don't think this is the time to get into blaming on other people so let me, of let, other countries. Let, let me ask a question. Yeah. I don't know if you know this, but but on previous virus outbreaks like SARS and maybe even Zika, um, how does this normally work when we start to see things happening in other countries and the World Health Organization? And what typical measures does the CDC start taking and working in conjunction with, with the, or, the World Health Organization and other countries to start identifying and preparing and educating the public? I mean... I, I don't know if you want to speak to that, Doc, but I, I don't. I can't tell you the exact measures. I don't know that the CDC takes, but obviously they have um, surveillance. They have epidemiologists. They have surveillance, so they're constantly looking at these kinds of threats. We are supposed to have um, preparation for these kind. I mean, we've known for a long time a pandemic will come. We've had these other ones that have sort of come and gone, but we've known this is going to happen. But I guess what I, what my personal message is that this just shows you how we really are one world. We are one world. And so these diseases travel all over and finger pointing and blaming isn't going to help. Neither is any kind of political uh, posturing that we, we all, all the humans of the planet need to be safe and we all have to come together to fight this virus. And I don't think it's helpful to turn it into, uh, you know, some well, kind they're, of, they're but, playing, playing catch up because I, so many of the, of the resources and even the departments were eliminated two years ago. So, you know, there's yeah, a so lot me, of history. Let me make a few comments. One is the public health, the, the entire sort of industry of public health in this country, which is really an industry, it's a government service, was slashed severely 
2007, 2008 during right. the Great Recession, and it was never really brought back up. So they they are all operating, all the health departments in the entire country, uh, whether it's small town USA or the city of LA, on about one half of the budget that they had 10 years ago. So their staffs hmm. are all about half of what they had 10 years ago. So many people in these public health offices are basically doing each individual is doing the job of three people, two or three. Well, people. I, I want to interject. I want to interject. I, so I understand at that level, but at the CDC level, my understanding is the budget has increased over the years at the CDC. That, but That's that, not my understanding. First, not just the CDC. There have been other agencies set up for global surveillance and pandemic preparation. And I think yeah, Many and of the those yes, yes, have yes, been so cut. That, that, abso that absolutely was is, cut. And that was cut under John Bolton. I read that. Okay, but, the but the CDC is not real. CDC is there about, is, is certainly there for leadership and for study, but not on the front lines. Okay, so they're not so on the front then, lines. So then what has happened with the leadership of the CDC? Well, the problem is that when we first found out about this epidemic, our country had the opportunity right then and it was to late, get late to get on year. to creating test kit. You know that those the first rollout of test kits didn't work. So still, we're way way behind in testing people. To your point, JT, um, we're going to eventually find out that a lot more people have the disease than than the virus than we think because we way behind in testing. So I think it's a really good question. What where is our public health infrastructure? And why wasn't more done up until this point? And there's no question that the CDC, it's not all about money. It's also about the leadership. I don't know about the leadership there. There are probably a lot of questions. I think a lot of people are asking about what is going on with the leadership at the CDC. It's not all about money, um, but it is on the front lines as far as like public health departments in the cities. It is about money and it is about having their budget slash and that they're about 50% at uh, budget where they were 10 years ago. The other thing I want to mention real quick is um, if you, what, what's really fascinating to me is looking at the difference between countries that are successful right now and countries that are failing miserably. So at the two ends of the spectrum, you've got the most, you know what the country is the most successful at dealing with this outbreak right now? It's not China, it's South Korea. They yeah. are the most successful. They were so at, far ahead. They are so far ahead at dealing with this. They are. They they've done an amazing job, and it's all through technology. It's and, but, really but amazing. They, they took South Korea took a different approach than China and Italy. With without the quarantine and the sequestering, it was Correct. all about testing and Correct. data. Correct. And that's it. Data driving. And 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 that's so true. everybody's got these apps on their. We phones. don't have tests. Right. We Everybody. Don't, don't they've got really drive through testing. They've done. 200,000 tests by now in South Korea. I just read today. They've done 200,000. How many have we done in this country? We've done like a couple of thousand. I mean, it's literally ridiculous. Hmm. So they've done 200,000 tests. They do something like six or 8,000 tests a day, something like that, more than that, 10,000 tests a day, so that anybody can pull up their phone and they can actually see in real time where the positive diagnoses are so they can see in real time on their apps the clusters hmm. to and, and those areas are the areas, obviously, to avoid. And not only that, but they've got these drive-through uh, testing sites, so you literally right. can just drive right up to a window somebody will swab your mouth and your nose and you drive off and I it's done there was 
Wow. Well, that's amazing. There was somewhere, amazing. there was one state that's doing that now, and there was like a four hour wait, and people were happy to do it. They're sitting in their car just waiting to go. And in. of course, it's all free because they yeah. have a huge public health infrastructure. So, so, but, so that's know, but, a success. But, but for your listeners right now, I, I don't. Again, it's like I, I want to not create panic and have people be like, well, we, we're not prepared. Ah! That I, I think it's really important that we have a message that conveys to people that there is, this is not a time to panic. There's really no reason to panic. You, you know, you can prepare, as we've been saying for the you last couple of weeks. We've been very consistent with that. The doc has certainly. So that means, yes, you know, go to the store. The stores are restocking their shelves. You know, it's, yes. it's fine. You can get... You can get ground beef and, and pasta and, and make dinner. Again, it's not about individuals getting this. Even in Italy, where it's considered like the worst case scenario, even there, they've got, I think, uh, they've got about 13,000 people that have the diagnosis in Italy. And there's 40 million people in, in the country. And so that comes up to uh, about 0.025%. I was recently there. So, that, so you're talking about... Um, two and a half people per 10,000 individuals. But, but hold on, hold on. I, 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 and granted, it's going up. It's going but, up. But, but, but eventually, on. wait, wait, no, let me finish. But eventually, even their actions, sequestering people, isolating, you know, putting people under quarantine, it's going to eventually the curve is going to shift and it's going to flatten. And what you're going to see in another like month or so is they're going to look back and they're going to say, hey, we're we, we you know, we eventually like blunted this uprising of, of cases. And at the end of the day, we had something like a rate of maybe three people per 10,000, which is not insignificant. But but. but- the point to your statistics, you, you're quoting an overall population, and I think where I see the risk as a non-educated... It's the rate of rise. It's the rate of rise, but it's also it's the impact of certain segments of the population, whereas large swaths of the population can get it and may have mild effects, but it's to the elderly part of our population and the people with underlying health issues that this poses the greatest risk to. So when you're quoting the statistics, people, you know, people in their 70s and 80s, that mortality rate may be much, much higher than than somebody who's our age and younger. And that's why it's even more important for those people to take precautions. If you're talking about bunkering into your home, if you're an elderly person or you're a person who has underlying health conditions, absolutely, you want to take care of yourself. You do not want to have your friends visiting and you really want to self-isolate to ensure your own health. And obviously if you have a relative or someone that you want to see, then you have to be really just as precautious as them. You have to imagine you are that person. But I I, I do want to... Or or this could be an excuse not to see your family. But I guess that's where where, where to me it's about being smart in terms of this kind of level of precaution like i think yeah if you're in an if you're in an assisted living facility and you're 80 year and you're and all the residents there are 80 years old sure the level of of confinement of quarantine of of limited interaction with individuals on that scale is 100 appropriate i personally don't believe that it's as necessary or even as effective to do that on the rest of the population so doc let's but everybody's got a different point of view on that. Let's pivot a little bit because I'm really curious as to what you've been seeing in your professional life over the last week or even couple days. You know, you're you're uh, I don't know if you've had to go into a hospital recently. I'm sure you're in I communication. Have. Yeah, I have. Um, but even in an office where people are coming in often, what's the um, 
what are the precautions being taken? What is that environment like right now behind the scenes? So I'll tell you, as far as my office goes, we've, we've had a lot of, every day we have meetings about this. We posted signs in our office, both on the outside door before you walk into the office that basically says, if you're having symptoms like this, or you've traveled at the, in, in high risk areas and we've listed them, you please do not come into our office. And then of course, um, inside the office, we also have signs that says it just to reiterate, if you're having any kind of symptoms, please discuss with staff because we'll you know, have a discussion with them, et cetera. And then of course we instruct our patients on the, on the measures we're taking in terms of wiping down, you know, being more aggressive, wiping down rooms. I don't enter a room now without having a fresh pair of gloves on stuff like that. As far as the hospital goes, um, I was just going to share with you a, um, an email that came out from the chief of staff um, from our hospital so you can get an idea of what, what happens on my level and the kind of information I get from, from people in my, uh, my uh, um, uh, as doctors. So he said, Dear colleagues, during this time of stress on our community, I wanted to give you an update. We will be pushed to our limits as both physicians and human beings, and our resources will most certainly be stretched to their limits until this pandemic resolves. We have designated 2T, which is a floor at the hospital, as the unit for the potential COVID-19 patients and those that will need to be ruled out. The doors are appropriately marked with, quote, authorized personnel only, end quote. The nurses, ancillary staff, and physicians have been appropriately educated on proper attire and protection devices. The vents in both 2T and emergency department have been retrofitted to provide more rooms with reverse flow capability. The modified COVID-19 command center, which includes physicians, administration, and nursing, has been meeting regularly, sometimes three times per day, for optimizing our strategy. The command center structure will be expanded as needed in the coming weeks. We have adequately supply we have adequate supplies for the care of patients. However, supplies are limited as all the hospitals in the country have an increased need for these supplies. Please assist the hospital in maintaining critical supplies by not taking them from the hospital. This includes masks, gloves, hand gels, etc. So that's that's the letter from the chief of staff. I think it was appropriate and responsible. And I think that we're going to continue to get those kinds of updates and we're going to learn. And I think that's the kind of message people need to know that your, your local hospitals are preparing that, um, you know, that we have the resources, we have the staff, the training is being done right now. And so I think that's a very, uh, to me, that's a very reassuring message that we're on it. Does the does the triage level change in an ER in times so I just, like this? I just called the ER this morning because a patient of mine was um, asking me, you know, what happens if I have to go to the ER? Um, and I and so I, you know, because I might have a problem. And you know I, what I mean? Like, would some people not get accepted now? Right. So this is this is what I found out because I called the ER this morning and I spoke to the physician on 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 attending there. And what they've done is they've set out tent set up tents outside of the emergency room. So anybody who walks in with symptoms that might be a possible COVID-19 patient, whether it's flu-like symptoms or anything else like that, they go to the tents. They go to the tents. If you walk in and you say I've got chest pain or I can't urinate or I got a bloody nose or something else then you go into the regular standard ER. He said, as it is, um, the emergency room is like very quiet right now where we are seeing, you know, people going into those tents because you have to remember that like on any given day, 
a third of the people in the waiting room in the ER are there to just get regular uh, healthcare service oh, for yeah. their being having a new cough or you know they have uh, some kind of an infection and so now they're all going into the tents so now the ER is practically empty but they don't have double the doctors so how are they handling resources well they they probably staffed the tents with uh, with physician extenders and nurses and things like that kind of you know the other thing i want to point out the 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 issue of getting tested and diagnosed is only for the sake of public health. It's not for treatment. You're not getting diagnosed so you can know whether you should yeah, be treated because guess really what? There is no treatment. It's right. all about the data. Well, there's, there's no tre- supportive it's all about treatment. The data. There's supportive treatment, but only if you're really sick Aren't and, the, you and you're getting anyway? short of breath. And yes. you're going to do that anyway. Yes, of course. That's my point. No, so if you're, if, of course. So you're regardless right. of, you know, even if you didn't get the diagnosis right. and you walked into an ER and you're short of breath, they're going to treat you the same way right. whether your diagnosis is positive or not. They're going to do exactly the same thing. So the exactly. numbers are just going to go... It's only to get the numbers right. that, that will end up going and, up and then we'll... And what I out. also want to say is that I think that this whole effort that we're taking as a society right now, again, like closing Disneyland and closing certain you know gathering uh, events and things like that, is basically just teaching our society the value of what public health means. Yeah. It's not to save our lives individually. It's to... It's to protect our society collectively. That's, that's really where the people purpose. get really confused. And that's the education here. Yeah. Is that they don't understand that public health is focusing on populations of people, not you individually. So a lot of people who are thinking about I myself I have gotta a low save risk. My own, I got to save my skin from this. Or I have a low risk, so I should go out. Aren't right. thinking about, about themselves that. in terms of like, we are all part of this population of people. And among whom, as you've said, there are people who are immunocompromised. There are elderly people. There are people who could potentially die. So we want to all as a group um, contribute to this effort. It's not just about you as an individual. So... I have one more question. We'll wrap this up. The it's for Robin or Michael. Um, Chibi, you can sit this out. <laughs> no, I'm sure you have a comment. It's fine. Uh, no, um, I was trying no. to find the uh, 50th state that had no COVID-19 cases. West Virginia. Oh, it's West Virginia. Is it? No. Well, there you go. Yeah, because we can only fly there. Far. Yeah, because I'm trying to. Because they're saying like 49 of the 50 U.S. states. Are you states. planning spring break? <laughs> yeah, I was just curious. I thought it would be like Alaska or Hawaii or something. No, Alaska's no. hit pretty hard. So here's my question. So West Virginia. West Virginia. About the infectiousness, if that's a word of this. So you hear about, because you mentioned Disneyland. They call it our value. Okay, good. Um, You know, you hear about Disneyland and measles outbreaks and and how rapidly that can spread. Which has the highest R value. Okay, good. Measles. All right, so that's interesting. So my question is, we knew, for instance, a couple days ago, someone flew back on a plane from Florida who had it. He was tested and he found out it was, I think he found out it was positive while he was on the plane somehow. He flew to Florida. From Florida, I thought. No, I thought he was landed in West Palm Beach, oh, okay. I thought, and then told the plane, told JetBlue. Okay. Um, yeah, I knew it was a JetBlue plane. Yeah. So as far as we know right now, it didn't spread beyond him. So it was, now I'm sure those people have all been tested or I think they held them on the plane for a while. So what I'm getting to is how infectious is this if someone's on a plane in such confined circumstances and touching things, and then it doesn't go beyond that? And I'm not trying to downplay the infectiousness of it. I'm just trying to quantify it somehow. Well, from what I understand, it's more infectious than the flu. Yes. 
It's definitely much more infectious than the flu. Easier, and th- easier, and the to, answer, get. It's easier yeah. to get. The answer to your question is it, 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 it's a lot of it has to do with proximity. So like if you're an infected individual on an airplane and that airplane is full of people, you're not necessarily going to infect the entire airplane. You might infect nobody or you might infect one. But what's what a case in point is in New York City right now or the greater New York metropolitan area, I know that I forget the numbers, but they say that something like out of the, I don't know, hundred and something people now that have been shown to be infected, 50 of them can be traced to one individual. It was this attorney who lives right. in like Westchester. New Rochelle. 50, half of the cases right now can be traced to that one individual. So that's pretty infectious. So it doesn't mean that he infected them all. It means that he infected, it, it's contact tracing. He infected Somebody, right. a couple of people and they infected a couple of people and yeah. they infected a couple of people. And so they can trace it all back to that one guy. But and that's fi- only over the course of like a week and a half. So to answer but your it's question. it's not a thousand people, it's 50 people. No, and you're right. In, in, in the case of measles, I think they say, and I forget the exact statistic here, but they'll say like in a 500 square foot room or in a thousand square foot room, if one person walks in, with the measles and there's 90 other people in that room, 80 of them will get the measles. Wow. So it's like the highest R value of any, of which any is, infectious condition. Which is also why I'm pretty frustrated that our federal government did not take this seriously and our president was uh, mingling with people who had the virus. And I think no. that is very, very serious. Well, he didn't know he was mingling with people who had the no, virus. No, but it was very irresponsible that the message we seemed to get from the top at the beginning was almost like it's going to go away. I think it, it wasn't like that. I think that was the message. It was, was a lack of, a, going lack to get of away. understanding. They yeah. did not understand. So I do agree with you, GB. At the highest levels, the virus was not taken seriously at a time when it really should have been. Which is kind of going back full circle to the beginning of this show, which is don't panic, but take it seriously and and limit limit the exposure so that that our value, uh, you know, stays where it's at and we don't spread it even farther. Yes. And preparation, not not panic is, I think, a really great message. Well, Robin, thank you for joining us today. I think it was uh, a very interesting, informative and robust discussion. And you were certainly you certainly added to the show. So thank I you. I always wondered what you guys did when you were doing your podcast. So thanks so much for yeah, having me. It was really like throwing it was really fun. <laughs> thank you very much for for joining us, Robin. Indeed, in the doc as always. Appreciate your insights. What about great. my thanks, GB? It's always good absolutely thank GB. You. Of course, come on. You're great. <laughs> All right, everyone, be safe. Don't panic, and uh, we will see you next week. Absolutely. So that's our show. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Two Men and a Doc is hosted by Dr. Michael Hyman, GB, and Jay Tannenbaum. Produced by Jay Tannenbaum. The views and opinions expressed here by Dr. Hyman are based on his medical training and experience, but if you or someone you know are experiencing any medical issues, you should, of course, consult your own physician. We welcome your questions about men's health or anything you've heard on this podcast. So write to us at mail at twomenandadoc.com. That's M-A-I-L at twomenandadoc.com. If you live in the Los Angeles area and want to see Dr. Hyman, you can find his contact info at drhymanla.com. That's D-R-H-Y-M-A-N-L-A.com. And these links are also in the show notes. That's it for this week. 
See you next time on Two Men and a Doc.